Good morning again. Uh, if you would please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7 will be our text this morning. Uh, and I wanted to start this morning with some quotes on marriage that I thought were just particularly appropriate to the occasion. Please take these in the spirit in which they are intended. Quote number one by the great Winston Churchill. He says, my most brilliant achievement was my ability to be able to persuade my wife to marry me. In which I think many of us men in this room could say the same thing. All right, number two. Uh, this is about Ogden Nash. It says, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. Henry Youngman says this. He says, some people ask the secret of our long marriage. We take time to go to a restaurant two times a week. A little candlelight dinner, soft music, and dancing. She goes Tuesdays, I go Fridays. <laughs> Prince Philip says this, when a man opens a car door for his wife, it's either a new car or a new wife. <laughs> I didn't say it. Don't give me a... Helen Rowland says this, marriage is like twirling a baton, turning handsprings, or eating with chopsticks. It looks easy until you try it. I figured I'd get more amens on that one, but that's all right. And then Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, 28, part of our text this morning. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Okay. The word of the Lord. All right. Okay, we will talk more about marriage in a minute, because 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says a lot of things in a very long passage dealing with marriage. Uh, but just to catch you up, we are currently in the middle of a study through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and here's your review on the stuff that we've covered so far. 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, it's all about disunity. Okay, people in the church, some said, well, I'm following this apostle. Some said, I'm following this guy. Uh, and they couldn't get along with each other. And Paul says, our witness to the rest of the world about the glory of Jesus rests on us being united in Christ. Okay, we're not following different people. We're following Jesus, right? We've got to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And I think it's very important that Paul starts this entire letter by saying, when we get the focus on Jesus right, when you get the Jesus piece right, okay, then the rest of your problems work out, Okay. Then Paul goes into talking about several specific problems in the church. Uh, the next section, chapters 5 through 7, he very specifically addresses sex and marriage. Okay. And then just so you know where we're going next week, um, starting in chapter 8, going all the way through 10, he talks about the burning issue in our culture today of meat sacrificed to idols. And so we'll, we'll get into some weeds on that, but I think it's an important topic actually, even though it's not something that we particularly struggle with. Okay, but with all of these issues, all of these sections, and even further on as we get even deeper into the letter, okay, what we're doing is we're looking at some very specific problems that they faced in first century Corinth. Right? And even though you and I don't face all of the exact same problems that they do, I think just like these people, we need to desperately understand how Paul uses God's principles to solve these specific problems. In other words, we don't follow different apostles. Uh, we don't go visit temple prostitutes. We don't have idols like they did. Okay, I certainly never ordered a meal at a restaurant and worried that the steak had been used in idolatry worship to Zeus, right? We don't face the exact same problems they did. We live in a very different world than that of 2,000 years ago in first century Corinth. But we can learn God's principles 
Okay, and then we apply those principles to the problems that do exist in our culture. Anyone want to argue that our culture has it all figured out? That everything in our world is just great? No. Okay, we need to learn how do we apply gospel principles? How do we apply loving Jesus first and loving other people like we love ourselves? How do we apply the gospel to the issues that we face in our broken world today? Okay, I think cultures change. I think societies change. But people are people. And we are no more or less selfish than we've always been. Okay, our sins may look different, but they're the same sins, right? And God's principles never change. Okay, so that's why we're studying a bunch of issues that seem disconnected to us. But I think when we take a minute and look a different and, and look a little bit deeper, we see uh, that they apply just as much to us as they did to those people. Is that all fair? There's your How to Read the Bible 101 for this morning. All right, now let's get into our text. Today, this is chapter 7, um, and as we look at our text this morning, I want us to remember that a lot of what Paul is doing in this letter to the First Corinthians is he's taking a quote from them, right? He's taking something that was in a letter that they wrote to Paul, and he'll give us a quote from something that they were saying, and then he'll refute it and say, okay, it's kind of true, but you need to think about it very differently, right? And that's how chapter 7 starts. He starts with a quote from them, notice 7 verse 1. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, he's taking a quote from them, and then he's going to say, kind of, but you're missing the bigger picture of what God's really doing in the world. Okay, so some of the people in Corinth were of the opinion that any kind of sex you want to have is fine, right? Whatever feels good, just do do it. Okay, this is what we talked about last week. Um, there's a school of thought in their day that said uh, your physical body's not really that important. Okay, what matters is your spirit, your soul. Okay, so what you do with your body doesn't really matter, right? And in chapter 6, Paul says, no, it does matter. We cannot separate out physical and spiritual apart from each other. It's all under the lordship of Jesus, right? So in chapter 7 now, he'll turn and he'll address other people in Corinth who are thinking the exact opposite, okay? Um, and this also represents the two major schools of philosophy that existed in the first century world, right? Some people thought it's all about the physical. Some people thought it's not about physical stuff at all. Okay, so now in chapter 7, he addresses the group of people that said, well, okay, if physical stuff can be bad and sinful, then we need to avoid any kind of physical sex at all right? Complete abstinence. If you want to achieve a higher level of spirituality, then what you need to do is avoid any kind of sexual contact at all. All right, now, Paul will take 40 verses in chapter 7 to teach us several principles, all revolving around this issue of marriage and sexuality within marriage, Okay, we're not going to take time to read all 40 of those verses, but I want you to notice where he starts in this text because I think it's very important. Notice starting in verse 2. He says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband... Sorry, I got off. Okay, um, Where was I? The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, which sounds really romantic when Paul puts it this way, right? He says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. 
Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, here's what I think is the main principle Paul is laying out in this text. If you're taking notes, I've given you space on the front of your bulletin to write this down. Okay, here's number one. That is, Christians should put our spouse's needs first. Okay, if we're going to call our marriage Christian in any sense, then part of what that means is we put our spouse first. Now again, sex is an important part of marriage. Uh, Paul is specifically addressing a problem of some Christians thinking abstinence in marriage is a path towards spiritual maturity. And so they said, we just won't have sex at all. And Paul says, no, you don't deprive each other. Right? But notice the underlying principle. Okay? It's you put your spouse's needs ahead of your own. All right, a few weeks back, my wife's little SUV that she had, it got to the point where it didn't want to start every time. Uh, it also needed a new anti-lock braking system, which we figured was going to cost us about $1,500. Okay, the car wasn't worth $500, so we figured it was time to get a new vehicle. Uh, my wife has this unreasonable expectation she should have a car that starts every time and that brakes whenever she wants it to. So, fine, we'll do it your way, okay? Uh, time to get a new vehicle. Now, of the opinion we have a family of four it's staying a family of four okay? and so we don't need a big suv we just need a nice family car right just a car she was of the opinion no we don't need a car we need a little suv right something that sits a little higher that she can get a better view a lot of women are nodding at me right now yeah that's exactly what she needs okay so i think we need a car she thinks we need a little suv so we compromised and now she's enjoying her little suv right it's kind of a compromise, right? Okay, it's a silly story, I know, and it's, at the end of the day, it is just a vehicle. Okay, but I'm glad we were able to get her what she wanted. Right, and kind of the, the lesson in my roundabout way in doing this is I think I'm at my best as a husband whenever I'm putting her needs and her desires ahead of my own. Right? I think she is at her best as my wife when she's not thinking about herself and her needs, but she's putting me first. The way a marriage works, especially a Christian marriage, where we're saying we're doing this in the name of Jesus, the way a marriage works is when we're not thinking selfishly, but when we put the other person and their desires and their needs first, and I think that applies to lots of stuff. I think it applies to sex. I think it applies to money. I think it applies to what TV show we watch at the end of the night when we finally get the kids to bed, right? Which is how I'm in season five of Downton Abbey right now, right? Okay. How are we putting our spouse first in everything that we do? Okay, all of us who are married would find our marriages, I think we would find our lives overall much happier if we could truly understand how to properly submit to each other, right? So if you are married this morning, you have homework, your homework assignment for today is to think, what is a very specific way that I can submit to my spouse this week? Right, what's something very specific in your marriage? And all of us who are married have something in our lives going on. What is a specific way that I can put my spouse first in something? Some of you need to quit shaking your heads at me, right? This is not optional homework. This is the word of the Lord, right? Submit to your spouse. How can we put our spouse first? And elbowing your spouse right now doesn't help either. I can see you, you know, right? Like, 
I see what you're doing. All right, uh, two kind of subpoints underneath number one before we get to number two, because I think this is important. This is one of those passages in Scripture that can be used inappropriately if we're not careful. Uh, here's your first subpoint. This is not teaching sex on demand. Okay? This is teaching mutual submission in marriage. Right? Now, this is teaching sex is a very important part of your marriage. Okay? The two top things that couples fight about in marriage is sex and money. Right? Those are the number two problems that lead people to be in counseling for their marriage. If we want to have an example of what a good marriage looks like, we need to work on both of those issues. Okay? Um, sex in your marriage should be a strength for you. If it's not, then do work on this. Right? This is something that we need to get right if we're going to be married the way that God intends us to be married. That's not too blunt, right? We can talk about this. We're all adults. We're okay. Okay. Just checking. All right, we need to work on our marriages, and that includes sex, but this is not sex on demand. It is what does it look like for me to really put my spouse first? What does it look like for me to lift up the other person? Fair enough? All right. Secondly, uh, this is teaching equality. Okay, Paul very often gets an unfair reputation for being sexist towards women. Okay, we're going to deal with a couple of passages later in the book, even of 1 Corinthians, um, talking about some differences between men and women and what we do with that. Okay, but I want us to notice in this text, Paul is pushing equality far beyond what was acceptable socially in his day. Right? In the Roman world, the husband commanded and the wife obeyed. Paul says in a Christian marriage, it doesn't work that way. In a Christian marriage, it looks like putting your spouse and their needs first. Right? There is an equality in this that is far beyond what would have been socially normal in Paul's day. Okay? As a Christian marriage, our marriage should look different than that of the world around us. Fair enough? Okay. All right, so here's point number two in our text. Uh, and this seems a little bit unrelated to marriage, but it really does fit if you track along with Paul's bigger argument. Here's number two. That is, Christians should not be obsessed with changing our status. Okay, as Christians, we need to not be obsessed with changing our status. All right, I have uh, two kids. One is five, one is nine. And the other day, my five-year-old Sam was telling me how his life will finally be complete when he can just make it to being nine years old like his brother. Okay, Dad, I just can't wait. Whenever I'm nine, that's when everything's going to be good. All right? And it's like, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, maybe when I'm nine, I can stay up past 8.30. Okay. Right? And, and when I'm nine, Dad, then I can watch all those shows on Netflix that you won't let me watch. I'm like, not exactly. Right? Okay, but he honestly thinks that when he gets to be nine years old, then, finally, all these years, these arduous long years of waiting will all be worth it because then, at nine years old, he will have arrived. Now, how many of you think that when my son is nine years old, he'll be completely satisfied and then everything will work out for him? Right? Okay, now, uh, the temptation as we go through life is I think about things like that, right? And I think, okay, well, once I make it to middle school, 
then I'll be okay. Or once I get my driver's license, right, then everything will be all right. Then I'll have wheels and I can go places, okay? Or, you know, once I graduate and get rid of all this school stuff behind me, then I'll be good. Or once I get into the college I want, then finally my life will be, or wait, maybe once I get the career I really want, if I get the job, if I could just get that job that I really wanted, then everything will be all right. Oh, okay, maybe once I get the kids here, then everything will be much easier in my life, right? Or, no, wait, wait, it's when I get the kids out of the house. That's when everything will be great and life will be wonderful. Maybe, no, 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 whenever I retire, when I can finally get rid of my job and then I can retire, then finally my life will be content. Okay? Uh, what's the problem with this way of thinking? You'll never get there, right? There's always something else coming around the corner and we think, man, if I could just get that next thing, if I could just achieve X, Whatever it is in your life, I don't know what it is for you. I know some of the things it is for me, right? But if I could just get to this point, then I'd be content, then I'd be happy, then everything would be okay in my life. And if we live life constantly thinking, well, what's my next thing that if I achieve, then I'll be okay, then we'll never learn how to live in the day that we're at today, okay? We will miss the purpose for which we were created if all we can do is look for when can I get to X, all right? Now, in Paul's day, some people felt that the ideal was to be married, right? If I could just get married, then everything in my life would be wonderful. And so they were rushing into marriage. Okay, some people thought that they had heard Paul talk before about the blessing of being single. And, you know, a single person, they can be full-time for Jesus, whereas a married person, they have their attention divided, and they had heard Paul talk about that before, and so they thought, well, so what I need to do is get divorced for Jesus. If I could just get rid of my spouse, then I would be okay. <laughs> Tom, you need to see me after class. Let's, we need to have a conversation. Now, often, part of what would happen, especially in a new church like Corinth, okay, is you would have a couple, one person in the marriage would convert to Jesus, and the other one would stay a non-believer, right? And then the believer thought, oh no, I'm married to a pagan. I've got to get rid of my pagan spouse, okay? And then they would leave their non-believing spouse, okay, for a lot of different reasons, going in various different directions. And you can read several of these as you read deeper into chapter 7, the Corinthians were seeking to change their marital status, right? Either I got to get married or I got to get out of the marriage I'm in, whatever it was, I've got to change where I'm at right now, right? And Paul says, if you keep thinking, once I get to that next step, then I'll be okay, you've completely missed the point, all right? Notice what he says. This is verse 24. He says, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, don't be legalistic about this, all right? It's easy to read this and say, well, this is some, a verse that we can apply to everything, right? Um, don't be too legalistic about this. Is stuff going to change in your life? Is your status in life just going to naturally change as you progress through life? Absolutely. Is Paul against marriage? No. Okay, and stuff is going to happen, right? You may lose a spouse. Your spouse may cheat on you and you divorce them, right? There's any number of things that can't happen that change your status in life. I think the teaching, the principle that Paul is applying here is he's saying you can't let changing the status that you're in right now be the thing that's going to lead you to happiness and fulfillment. 
Okay? This is not some absolute that nothing's ever going to change in your life. What he's saying is, is don't let your status and what kind of relationship you have right now on earth determine the relationship that you have with God. That work? We're not going to misunderstand this text. We've all got it and we're all good. I like it. Okay. Uh, notice we'll go up a few verses. Go to verse 21. Because he'll bring some other status changes into this as a way of making this point. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. He's just saying, yes, slavery is an evil thing, and it's not good. But if you happen to be in slavery whenever you're becoming a Christian, don't let your status on earth dictate to you your status before God. Yeah, if you can get your freedom, that's wonderful. Do it. Change your status. But your life goal is to live for God. It's not to achieve some new status on earth because all this is temporary anyways. Right? There's a bigger reality that's going on around you, and it's not about whether you're married or single, whether you're a Jew or Greek or slave or free or even a man or a woman. What's it about? It's about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ and letting that dictate the terms of your life. That work? All right. Now, there's some status changes in this passage that Paul says, as a Christian, you can't do, right? You can't divorce your spouse just because they aren't Christian. Right? But he says, if they leave, you can let them go. Right? But as far as it depends on you, you keep your marriage whole. Okay? Paul has a lot of other specifics in here. Uh, we won't spend a whole lot of time on them. Anytime you talk about divorce in church, there's always specific issues that aren't specifically addressed in the text. Right? Everybody's life situation is a little bit different. Okay? But again, I think the principle underlying this is valid no matter what your situation is. And that is don't let your status, whether it's marital or your job status or whatever else it is, dictate your relationship to Jesus. Okay? Now again, uh, most of us live in situations that are quite different from the Corinthians. Uh, I don't think too many of us are tempted to leave our spouses and become single for Jesus. But, but I think the question we all need to ask ourselves is, you know, what is it that I think, right? If I could just achieve X, then I'd be there, right? Fill in the X for you. What is it in your life where you think, man, if I could just get to this, then I'd be happy, all right? Figure out what that X is for you and then think, am I really laying that at the feet of Jesus? Am I letting that dictate my life instead of my relationship with my Lord and Savior? Because unless the thing that's really filling in that gap is whenever I can get my relationship closer to God, then I'll be content. If it's anything other than that, uh, we're not truly living for Jesus. Is that fair? All right. Number three. As Christians, we need to learn how to use our current status to serve Jesus. Okay? Use our current status to serve Jesus. Uh, whenever I was preaching in Texas, uh, we wanted to have a study of some of the different religions around the world and have a study of how do you interact with people from those different faiths. Okay, and so we brought in some different speakers to talk about, you know, how do you talk about the Bible with a Muslim? How do you talk about the Bible with, you know, a Hindu and all sorts of different things? Um, and one of the units we wanted to do is how do you study the Bible with a Mormon? Okay, 
Um, and so to teach that lesson, I brought in my father, who's a preacher in Oklahoma City, and had him come down and teach a couple weeks on how do you study the Bible with a Mormon. And I specifically remember after all of those lessons, some of my members came up to me and said, well, David, why haven't you ever taught us this? Hey, and I thought, well, I've never studied the Bible with a Mormon. My dad has studied the Bible with lots of Mormons, so he is qualified to talk on this subject. I'm really not. Okay? Hold that story in your brain. Earlier this summer, I went to my dad's church in Oklahoma City, um, and I taught a couple lessons about how do you do ministry in a long-term hospital situation. Okay? Um, taught a bunch of principles, how do you do ministry in long-term hospital stuff. And afterwards, I heard some of my dad's members come up to him and say, well, Steve, how come you never taught us about that? Okay? And he says, well, my son's been in some long-term hospital situations. I've never been in those situations, so I'm not qualified to talk about it like he is. Okay. You have unique situations in your life. You have unique experiences. You have unique things that you have been through that qualify you to minister in ways that I'm not qualified to minister. All right? The point Paul makes in this text is if you are married and you have a marriage that can be a solid example of what a Christian marriage should look like, then you need to do that and you need to do that for Jesus. If you're single and you can devote yourself full-time to living and serving in the kingdom of God and you can be single, then be single for Jesus. Don't let your situation and your particular set of experiences dictate whether you can or can't minister. All of us are called to minister, but we are called to minister from whatever situation we are currently in, right? I'm not called to minister to every situation. I don't have every gift. I don't have every experience, the reason that God gives us such a large and varied and diverse body is so that we can minister to everybody because someone in this room has been through whatever you're going through right now. Okay? We all bring different skills. We bring different experiences. We bring different things to the table. And God uses all of that, but only if I can be okay with where I am right now and minister from where I am right now rather than thinking about, man, I need to get somewhere else and then I can minister from there. Okay? Whatever your situation is right now, God wants to use that for his kingdom. God can use it for his glory. Fair enough? All right. Next week, we'll get into the riveting issue of meat sacrifice to idols. But again, I do think it's important. I think all of these things are important. God gives us these great principles. He teaches us how to live a life that is for him. And if we will keep him first, then ultimately we'll get where we need to go. All right, at this time in our service, we are going to sing a couple of verses of an invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, during the song, this is a time when we as a church want to be here for you. And if you have any need, please come and talk to us about whatever that may be. Um, before we sing that song, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.